You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good morning. This is the 3CR Garden Show, and I'm Virginia Haywood. I'm a guide at the RBG, a selector with Oakham Gardens Victoria, and I've got a large country garden. With me is Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants, who does a 774 on Saturday mornings, does here, has a blog, The Horticulturalist. Meryl Johnson from Country Farm Perennials, one of the best nurseries around, but now she no longer does that and is a seed provider with Seedscapes. They both do tours, so we've got an interesting bunch this morning. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Virginia, and it is quite a pleasant day out there, so probably a day to get out into the garden. We had a surprisingly nice day yesterday, because everybody had said it was going to rain, and then we have had more rain overnight. I don't know how soggy everybody else is feeling, but everything around me is rather wet and and squelchy. Um, So let's hope for a nice gardening day today where we can all get out and enjoy that garden. And Meryl, good morning. Good morning, everyone, Virginia and Stephen. And yes, we're very soggy too, but things are on the move. Mm. And it's time to get busy in the garden. Hooray! (laughs) Absolutely. I've been very busy in mine. I've taken out at least five barrow loads of (laughs) plectranthus. Yes, well, I won't have to take out as much plectranthus this year because the frost got most of it. So <laughs> We have had a couple of absolute monster frosts. We yeah. had one one morning that went all the way to the top of the trees mm. and then the following really? morning it was halfway up the trees. That's serious frost. Yeah. But luckily it's good for the garden, it's good for the bugs, it's good for the plants and we all survived. <laughs> yes, well, I have to say it's not so good when you are pushing the barriers and growing things you probably shouldn't have, (laughs) uh, as I'm inclined to do, uh, because I always want to trial out that new plant. So I've had a couple of things that have not proven to be as cold hardy as I rather hoped. Um, Funnily enough, from climates like New Caledonia, where I should have known better. Um, (laughs) But anyhow, it's, it's all part of the excitement of trying things. You never know. And look, some of these plants, they'll get knocked to Billy-O. One, but they uh, will of, come back. Yeah, a lot of them will come back. So, yeah. you know, I lose the occasional thing completely to frost when I get a little too excited and plant something really ridiculous. Um, but really, it's surprising what things do come back again as long as you leave them alone and let them sort of find their own way. Don't get stuck into pruning them too quickly. Leave the dead foliage on them because it's inclined to protect the lower growth. Or even yes. even, even that foliage that's gone sort of slightly brown or, or purple yeah. Yeah. because of the cold. Absolutely. Yes, leave it, leave on, it there. Leave it on. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it's if you a, leave it till the spring's here, should be fine. Well, I think I'm going to leave things for another couple of weeks yet because mm. I'm not convinced all the frosts are finished oh, no. by a long stretch. Yeah. But there are some hardy things that you can be chopping back now, but... There's just so much to fun things. I'm not complaining one little bit. I'm delighted it's spring and we can get back out there Mm. doing little jobs. And for goodness sake, everyone remind me to stop in at that big green shop with the bee on it on the way home and get myself some spray to prevent curly leaf on my plum trees. Uh, Yes. I've got some miniature plum trees, which I absolutely adore, and they bear fruit beautifully, 
but every year they are martyrs to curly leaf. So I'm uh, determined yes, well, this my, year yeah, to catch it. <laughs> I'd better do it too because I've got a peach and a nectarine that uh, cop the curly leaf regularly and they both look like they're going to flower like mad this year. Indeed, so they are be, covered. Yeah. now. Is And the, the buds are really swelling. So now is the weekend to do it. Yeah. And I forgot yesterday, but I'm going to do it this afternoon. So tell people what you're spraying. Well, just a really old-fashioned Bordeaux-style mixture, mm. just a lime-sulfur mixture. It's it's nice and easy. It's not going to harm the environment. It's sort of low-key. Mm. But if you get your timing right, which is just at bud swell, and I do it twice when the buds first start to swell and then about a week later as they're swelling even further. But I've got to do it this weekend because they're really on the move. Uh, <laughs> I think I've got to the following weekend, but I'm not sure whether I'm going to cope because, of course, we've got my opening coming up in two weeks' time. So to find the time to spray the fruit trees, which isn't actually going to uh, benefit the opening, um, mm. you've got to work out what you're going to... You know, manage what's, yes. what's important. That's the yes. thing when you have an open garden, you do things you wouldn't otherwise. Well, this year I've got an open garden for the guides conference in October. Yeah. But I've decided year after year I end up with an open garden and I don't do things. So the, Helen Page came up the other day and she's cut one of my salvias to the ground. <laughs> and if it doesn't get back in time, well, well it's just bad luck. Well, yes. And it's a garden. I mean,. You wouldn't want the whole garden to be looking at its best for a week in October sometime because that tends to suggest that it might fall apart at other times. Absolutely, so yes. You need to have that continuity of things happening. Um, so I feel very sorry for people who would only open their garden on the last weekend in November when the roses are at their best because if that's all they can offer, then they're not it's, going to enjoy the garden the rest no. of the year. No. Oh, while we're... Speaking about the roses, I'm going to run the spray over the roses and anything else that's deciduous <laughs> and dormant just yes. to be on the safe side. Yeah, sounds like a good move. <laughs> the, the lime sulphur. Yes, yeah. Yes, I never spray my roses. No, I, re- I really do. But since I'm going to have the sprayer out this weekend, I'll do it. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Sounds like a move. And that open garden is Tugurium for the open garden scheme in Macedon, Saturday 27th, Sunday 28th of August. Yes. So is your garden already looking pretty wonderful? Oh, look, it's not looking too bad. I mean, I have got a few blackened things, but, you know, people will just have to accept that because I'm not going to cut that down. That's gardening. Yeah, it's gardening. So, And it's a winter opening, so you wouldn't expect the garden to look too verdant. Um, there's but, deciduous things. And, and and there's all the dainty little things at this time of well, that's year. That's right. Which, you know, the snowdrops are out. The, there's little daffodils starting to flower. Likewise. Cyclamen. Yeah, yes. there's uh, oodles of cyclamen out at the moment. I've got coom in full flight and I've got rapandum, which is going to be fairly close to full flight by the time the opening comes. It's got its first flowers at the moment. So and the be wattles. Yeah, I don't have a lot of wattles in the garden, though. Uh, but I've got a lot of wattles around the edge, Yeah, you know, and, and they're there. I mean, there's mm. a lot of wattles in Macedon for people to oh, yeah. enjoy. And look, there'll come. be other things they can do on that weekend. I mean, if you do come up for the open garden, um, there's places like Forest Glade, the big garden up on the mountain that's always open. You can always go on to do that, um, you know. Go for a drive up to Lake Sanitarium. There's there's oodles of things you can do uh, whilst you're there. You could visit some wineries even. Or, yes, you know, and your nursery will be open. And the nursery will be open. My dear friend Vanessa will be in charge for the weekend, so she'll be doing that. Oh, the other things in flower at the moment that I forgot to mention are the hellebores, of course. And yes. Oh, looking, Meg, they have enjoyed the cold wind. They really yeah. have. Ours are in They do look flight. magnificent this year, don't yeah. they? They and really I, and do. I, I took out this... Big, my favourite plectranthus, which mm. is is Zuluensis, yeah. and I took it out because it's just 
too big. Mm. I haven't cut it back for for a couple of years. It's just and so bang out it goes. I found all these stunning hellebores behind it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing what Completely you can find in your own garden about. sometimes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so yeah, so the hellebores are looking good as well. Uh, I mean, I don't have squillions of them. I tend to keep them in certain areas and use them at certain in certain places and I try and use certain colours in certain places. I was going places. to say, the colours these days are just so beautiful. Oh. There's sort of primrose lemon ones and mm. apricot shaded ones and deep burgundies and spots and frills and doubles. And, oh, oh yeah, they're wonderful. amazing stuff. Actually, we just last week, last yes, the week before last, we did a, an interview with uh, Peter Lee at Post Office Farm Nursery, which is probably one of the world's great growers. Mm. Um, and so we put that up on our um, YouTube video channel, The Horticulturalists. And so we spent the whole day out there with Peter. What fun. Work, working out how you grow them from seed, you know, how he does them as a production line, um, what he's got in his collection to, you know, we tried to show as many different hellebores as we could, how to manage them, how to grow them in pots, how to use them as cut flowers. I mean, virtually everything you could want to know about hellebores is in that video. And we had a great deal of fun. And Matthew walked out. It was funny because Matthew had gone in with this whole thing being somewhat negative about hellebores. He's, what? What? Yeah. They this hang man down. Needs re-education. And there's people that don't like the hangy down thing. They don't have to hang down. There's well, looky up ones. Well, there he is. But, you know, most of the really interesting ones tend to be in the hybridist ones that do have a tendency to hang over. But I think that's part of their elegance. Yes, exactly. You know, if they all stu- stood up, they'd look rather sort of Brash. stiff and, yeah, whatever. So, anyway, Matthew walked out with a hellebore at the end of the day and I went, ha, the aversion <laughs> therapies worked. And I walked out with one of Peter's um, Japanese hybrids that he bought in from Japan. Uh, and the Japanese breeder called it Cleopatra for reasons I cannot figure out. <laughs> um, but it's amazing. It's got all these petaloids in the side. It looks like a small version of some sort of informal chrysanthemum. It doesn't how the flowers, bizarre, beautiful thing, but a really bizarre thing. So, but yeah, I, and I presume things. it's sterile, so you won't be able to reproduce. Uh, it. No, it's not sterile. It can reproduce, but you'd have to keep it isolated to, to try keep and the keep seed the seed true. true. Yes. And that's, of course, what Peter does. So he talked us through how he pollinates and yes, keeps his keeps. seed strains pure. So for anyone who's interested in mm. hellebores, they should have a look at Stephen's blog. Yeah, they yes. should, and they should go and visit Peter. And he's open during the winter, Sundays only, over at Ashbourne, uh, on Ashbourne Road. If you go into Woodend, you turn left onto Ashbourne Road, go about seven or eight kilometres out, and he's on the right-hand side. And so every that Sunday. would be something that you could do. This is a wonderful thing to do when you're at Stephen's yeah, garden. go out exactly. to Peter Lee's and have a look at his hellebores. And, and I can attest it. to his, his – he's a modest and lovely man, but he is world famous. I can remember I went to a, a private garden in Germany to introduce myself and ask if we may come and, you know, bring our, our people to visit the garden in Germany. And he said, oh, you're from Australia. Do you know Peter? And I said, do you mean Peter Lee from Post Office Nursery? Yes, he said, I've got some of his hellebores. He's world famous. And I was so excited. He's very modest about himself. He he, is. And although we haven't given out the line, we already have a call. Ah, Oh, hooray. Which is Mary from Glenroy. Good morning, Mary. Oh, good morning. I'm just turning off my various... um, Electrical things. Um, I'm an 81-year-old woman and I planted fruit, fruit trees in organic uh, garden about 25, 30 
years ago and I can't climb into them any well, I can't do the pruning anymore. Yep. Um, um I have a fruit tree, a three way apple tree. So it's got Jonathan, um, Granny Smith and Golden Delicious in it. And I've got a couple of stone fruit trees. Um, so there that's something like three and a half meters high for the apple tree. And that's a little less than that for the two supposedly miniature fruit trees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I am in, I'm partly into the age care support system, and I'm thinking that there could be listeners who know of qualified fruit tree arborists, and hopefully I could make contact yeah. with them. Well, actually, I was already given the heads up on you, Mary, because uh, AB got in touch with me the other day and said yes. that you were in Glenroy and were looking for a, um, a surgeon. And I went into the net and I had a quick look um, there was a list in there of what they said were the 25 best uh, arborists uh, that work in the Glenroy area. Oh. So I would go in, if you don't uh, use the internet yourself, I'm I sure. I do, some, I do. Or I will go in and just type in arborists for Glenroy. Uh. Now, I obviously can't tell you whether they're good, bad or indifferent, but if, they've got, if they're listed as being, you know, sort of well thought of and they'll have recommendations in there and, reviews. you know, reviews and certain things like that, it might be the best way to see if you can find an arborist who's going to help you. So, um, um, so I did look and see if I could find somebody and, I, and it seemed to me that there were choices. So um, that's the way I would do it, Mary. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so very much. Oh, look, it didn't take much time. I was having my cup of coffee yesterday in the afternoon. I thought, oh, I'll go in and see if I could find an arborist in Glenroy. There's and heaps. It, <laughs> and it turned out to be easier than I actually thought it might be. So uh, you should be able to find somebody. Um, I would make sure that they're qualified. Uh, ask them. Well, uh, in fact. Um, Stephen, I, I've not been slow about this myself because mm. I've been looking, you know, arborist near me and then some of the things that have popped up is asking for what amount of money um, you've got handy to hand over mm. um, and other strange kind of things. Yeah, yeah be, do be careful because you, mm. you could end up with somebody who's a bit of a shonky dealer. Uh, but if they're accredited arbourists... Um, uh, hopefully have some sort of um, qualification. qualification from perhaps uh, Burnley uh, or somewhere like that where they've gone through and done proper training. Uh, they should be fine. Um, and, um, yeah, I, that's the way I would go about it because I don't have any personal experience of arborists that work in that area. I have my own preferred arborists for my area uh, that I would always recommend to people because I know they're good and they're reliable and, and, and they're fair in their pricing and so forth. Uh, but I don't know anybody down there. Well, best of luck with that. One of the things that I I had not understood was that you should only prune the, I think it's the Jonathan, every second year. And I had originally been pruning them every year. Mm -hmm. Do you know about that? 
Yeah, look, I believe some fruit trees are better not done every year, and a lot of people now are moving over to summer pruning as well. So uh, yeah. there's a lot more to it than we sort of um, realised, I guess. And an actual fact, if you've got a good arborist and they come in and, and you explain the issues of what you've got, they may even say to you that, you know, They'd prefer to do it as a summer pruning job because summer pruning actually slows fruit trees down so they don't grow quite as vigorously and it can be done after the fruiting season. So um, you get your fruit, then you get your arborist in, they prune your trees um, and then hopefully they'll be fine for a year or two because they don't grow as fast after, um, uh, after summer pruning. And that works well with uh, thing, older varieties like Jonathan's because they do tend to have a big crop every second year and yeah. then have a, a bit of a rest year in between. And so. a lot of fruit trees do that. I've got a snow apple in the garden. Oh, that is the most wonderful aren't apple they tree. Fantastic. I love snow apple. Um, uh, but it does tend to be somewhat biennial in its cropping. Yes. Not that it matters much. The parrots get most of them anyway, <laughs> even on a good year. Um, but um, And uh, I've sort of started to move over to summer pruning. Yes, we, we do summer pruning as well. Yeah. And, and especially on things like wisteria that can really get away from you if you... You know, don't pay attention yeah. to them. So summer pruning is a good thing to do after blooming there too. Keep some... Can I please come back in again, folks? Yes, mm. of course. Um, so I will stay with your program and hoping that maybe there'll be a listener who could call oh, yeah. in. Mm. So I'll be and, ready to take notes. And Mary, could you leave your phone number oh, with, yes, with our producer please. so that if yeah. somebody calls in, she can send she can pass the number on to you? Oh, bless your heart. What a wonderful service. I'm looking out <laughs> and seeing the trees, seeing some daffodils and those incredibly um, fertile jonquils. So I'm looking out <laughs> at the cold garden at the moment. There Thank is something very, very beautiful much. about the winter garden. Thanks mm. very much, Mary. Okay. And, my, and please transfer me and I'll give my phone number. Absolutely. Uh, well, there you go. I didn't have to actually... I already was aware, obviously, of that particular call, so I wasn't expecting Mary to call in again this morning. But And anyhow. so quickly. So that yes. was excellent. And yeah. also we will have Graham on, Graham Morrison on, on the last Sunday of October. So yeah. that's when we get the best stuff on... Mm. on yeah, he really knows his stuff trees. when it comes to fruit trees. So And I for those who him. are interested, if you have a look at our Facebook page, I think... It, Oh, maybe I didn't put it on. I will definitely make sure I put it on if I didn't. He has written a book called The Stairway to Me by Graham Morrison. And you have to, to actually access it, you have to contact Graham. And I can't find where I've written his number down, but I can look that up. I will, I will put it all online mm -hmm. because it's a great book, The Stairway to Me by Graham Morrison, and he is absolutely our fruit expert. Oh, definitely. And that's what the book is about, is, is fruit trees and pruning and, oh, excellent. It's, a, it's, a fan, it's, it's basically his life. Yeah. It's a, it's a lovely story. Now, can everyone get out their pens, please? Because I thought I would run through, as we're coming into spring, I'd run through some of the things that are on in the in this spring and there's a few for example the 3rd and 4th of September we well first we've got Stephen's garden which yes, is the last of this month 
Yes, so the 27th and 28th of August from 10 till 4.30 both days, 8 and 10 Centenary Avenue, Macedon, parking in Marshall Avenue. You can book online or you can just show up. We will have an FPOS machine so people wow. don't need to have cash with them this time round. Uh, obviously, we can accept cash too. It's not that we're moving over completely. Uh, so you can just show up. Uh, my partner Craig will have an art show on in the garage slash studio. Uh, so there'll be botanic art, cards available. Um, what more can I say? I'll have plants available for sale as well. So it should be a great weekend. So let's hope for some decent weather. And the next one after that is the 3rd and 4th of September when where two Australian gardens are open, Hanson Garden in Warrandyte and Mullum Waters in Donvale, which is open for the first time, I might add. And so that will also be well worth going to. Then the 1st and 2nd of October is the Garden Lovers Fair in Macedon. Yeah. Hooray. <laughs> Which is one of those things that's become something of an annual event, except when you have a COVID outbreak. <laughs> uh, so we haven't had our, our Garden Lovers Fair for a while, but now we're back on deck. And... I was talking to Roger, the secretary of the Hort Society, the other night. Uh, it looks like we'll have probably in excess of 40 stallholders uh, at this year's event, which we is a will few be extra. There. Yes, Meryl will be there. There will be a whole range of expected people, the people who've come year after year, plus some new faces as well. So for those of you who are regulars, there will be something new and different for you to see as well. And um, we will be there from Plant Trust, We will be Stephen, there from Plant Trust to talk to people. On. Yes, yes. so um, uh, – and, of course, you get the opportunity opportunity to have a look around the fabulous Bolabeck Garden. And this year there's a new and interesting um, sort of wrinkle to this. What we're doing is we're running a shuttle bus from Bolabeck and we've got two gardens open with Open Gardens Victoria. Fantastic So you can idea. leave your car in the car park at Bolabeck, you can jump on the shuttle bus and the shuttle bus will take you to the two other gardens. So you can get on and off whenever you need to. It will be going Just in a circle all the way around. Mm-hmm. And one of the gardens is called Lewisham, which is at the bottom of the mountain. Uh, it's got Beautiful several lakes garden. and bridges and, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting garden, more or less on the flat. Um, and the other garden that will be open with the event is... Um, Durrell, one of our lovely old um, historic Mount Macedon gardens that uh, has been in the same family since the beginning of the last century. Um, And uh, it's got an Edna Walling um, component to it. There's a whole section that was designed and laid out by Edna Walling. And uh, it's got wonderful big old trees and mossy lawns. And, you know, it's just a a lovely setting. Beautiful deciduous trees. So you'll be able to jump on the shuttle bus, go around and see the other gardens. As far as I know, they'll be stopping at a couple of other points that aren't necessarily connected to us directly. But you'll be able to go and see a couple of other gardens. They'll just drop you off and let you on again. As far as I know, they'll stop at the shop so you can go in and grab a coffee and what have you, which means you can also go into my nursery. Um, And um, so you can have a great day just sort of going around. Is the shuttle bus free, Stephen? Yes, the shuttle bus is free. Uh, The Horticultural Society got a grant from the council to cover the expenses thereof. So the shuttle bus is free and so it'll take you around. And I haven't got all the details yet, but there's also going to be an event on the Friday afternoon uh, at the Mount Macedon Hall, um, and Michael McCoy is going to be talking, plus a lady whose name I've forgotten off the top of my head, oh dear, well-known landscape designer. It'll come when it'll come at some yeah. Uh, So anyhow, Michael and this lady are going to be doing a talk in the afternoon. You can book 
uh, on try booking. I'm not sure whether it's up yet or not, um, but it will be uh, an afternoon of horticultural delight. I'm sure Michael's always a fantastic speaker. Um, and that um, will include uh, a lunch and an afternoon tea and the whole work. So you'll have a so lovely time. So it's a really very good big weekend. It is. And, and, and it's it... a gala event on the gardening calendar, I have to say, yeah. and so well organised. Just having a, the plant crèche at the, the plant fair is great because you can shop till you drop and park it all and then the car park is right there. It's fantastic. Yeah, it is. It's a really good venue. Uh, so anybody who hasn't been, I definitely recommend coming up to the uh, Garden Lovers Fair at Macedon. Uh, it's you a will lovely have a great crowd. Time. Nice people. And book in locally somewhere, perhaps do Michael's. The, the event on the Friday is specifically, again, it's a ticketed event that has been organised to try and keep people in the area. So the council is helped us with this because they want people to come and stay in the B&Bs mm-hmm. and, and what have you, the motels and so forth. Um, so you could come up on the Friday morning, do the event with Michael in the afternoon, stay overnight, come on to the fair on the Saturday. And then um, do the gardens on the Sunday. You could. You could do wow. the whole works, you know. So, um, so you could spend a whole weekend enjoying yourself at Masson. Then the next thing I have for you to put in your calendars is the 8th and 9th of October, which is the 17th Australian Herb Society or Australia and New Zealand Herb Society Conference, which is at Burnley. And a whole lot of people that appear on our show are speaking mm. there. Greg Moore, Penny Woodward, Clive Larkman, Chris Williams... Caleb Armstrong, who is my chemist in oh. Seville. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There. My, che- my chemist is fabulous because it is full of herbal remedies. Mm. And he knows about and them. And he really knows about them, yes. yes. So that is 8th and 9th of October, the Australian Herb Society Conference. And then the 24th to the 28th of October, for those of you who are guides, particularly regional guides, there's the Guides Conference at the Royal Botanic Gardens And, of course, the 5th and 6th of November is the Yarra Valley Plant Fair, which, of course, we want people to go to. I presume you'll be there, Meryl? Yes, we exhibit with bells on. It's it's fun. It's fun, that one. It is. It's a lovely venue and very relaxed, plenty of seating, lovely big trees, a nice flat space. People can come for the day and really enjoy it. Yes, absolutely. And, of course, then next weekend, Sunday, August the 21st, from 11 to 1... The Belgrave Food Garden is having an organic veg garden workshop from 11 to 1. It's 1624 Burwood Highway in Belgrave. So that's lots of things for you Goodness. all. Spring has sprung, hasn't yes. it? Yes, <laughs> yes, it's all happening. Yeah. Excellent, isn't it? And also we have a question which I think comes from next from last week, which I don't think we're going to be able to answer, but nevertheless we'll try. Do you have any tips for managing fashion vine hoppers in the garden? They are infesting my large ornamental grape, causing mildew, which is really affecting the, my canopy. I thought I'd done a really good job removing all the eggs I could find, but numbers seem even bigger last year. The vines are too big to squash or spray the nymphs. Any suggestions? Oh, gosh. That's well, if it's an ornamental grape, perhaps you could use a poison. I'm not mad keen on using poisons, no. but uh, I certainly wouldn't use poisons on, say, a passion fruit vine that might be systemic because then you're eating passion fruit that 
might well have poison in it. But if it's an ornamental grape, uh, I don't think the mildew's got anything to do with the hoppers, I might add. Mildew is generally mm. caused as a fungal disease that comes about when you've got humid, damp weather. And particularly and if we've the, been damp. And it we has. I mean, we've had two dank. La Nina seasons. And a third one on the way, apparently. It looks like it. Mm. Uh, so the mildew is just one of those things that happens when you've got damp weather, particularly if the plant itself isn't in an area where it gets lots of air circulation and wind and so forth. And on that, Stephen, can I say, if he actually prunes it so that the air can get through a bit, I think that that will help help. with the mildew. With the mildew, yes. Yeah, so the mildew is a different thing. It's not connected to the hoppers. Um, But um, I would have thought if you have to do it, a systemic spray would work um, uh, once the plant comes out into leaf. Um, I wonder if there's any little biological controls, any little critters that could be. I don't know. Those those hoppers tend to be fairly um, solid little critters, and I'm not sure what would eat them. Um, So uh, I don't know. It's the only thing I can suggest, but don't think of the mildew as being part of the same scenario. It is actually a different issue. Yes, which as soon as the drought comes back, which inevitably it will, it will disappear. But in, in the interim, do actually thin your grape out. Yeah. It might mean you get more sun through than you want, but it will mean the air can come through, and, which And will probably help. put on a fungicide uh, as, the, as the late uh, winter, early spring sets in. So soon um, you could spray with a Bordeaux yeah. or a copper sulfate spray, something like that, which may well help. Yes. Uh, and that might deal with the mildew to a large extent. And somebody has suggested maybe buying some beneficials, like go look up bugs, for bugforbugs.com. Yeah. Yes, I'm not sure whether they've got a predator bug that would have a go at leaf hoppers, but you never know. It's worth a look. Yeah, worth a it's look. worth a look, yes. Yeah. Now, you realise something I haven't done. I haven't told people either who we are. I'm Virginia Hayward, <laughs> and with me is Stephen Ryan and Meryl Johnson. And if you'd like to ring us, ring on 94190155. Or if you want to send us a text, 0488. 809-855. And you can send us, for those of you who are listening to us during the week, send us an email on gardening at 3cr.org.au and it will be dealt with next week. Yeah, fantastic. What so, a good idea. It's a great service. So do ring in 94190155. Yes, and we, we love, to love hear voices. getting questions. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, the, the text is fine, but often there's a follow-up question that we need yes. to ask. So if we can talk yes. to people, yes. it, does, uh, make it, it does make it a little clearer. easier. Uh, somebody rang in pointing out that a lot of areas, particularly north and east of Melbourne, like Warrandyte, I know AB was hit bad, have had really massive hailstorms. Yes. Oh, yes. With yes. incredible damage to their veggie gardens and yes. wondering if we've got any tips to help these plants. Mm, I would promise. say... A bit of seaweed and, and yeah, there's not yeah. a lot you can do if a, a plant is stressed prayer. like that and yes. had a lot of damage to it, torn apart. Really, you, yeah, you've got to just leave things standing and see what happens. Uh, as long as the heart of your lettuces and other things haven't necessarily been too damaged, they may well refurbish all right. But the seaweed is probably the best thing you can do. You can't really feed things when they're struggling. You've got to just give them a tonic. Yes, yes. Yeah. which is the seaweed. Yes, yes. I, a- do, I, I do. I do. I. I've got absolutely no evidence, but I do think seaweed makes such a difference. Oh, look, I'm convinced of it, having yeah. used it over many years in, in a nursery situation where we, we do try and avoid, you know, anything that's not safe and organic yeah. because we've got lots of rare frogs in our 
environment which we don't want to damage under any circumstances mm-hmm. and so many birds. So we, we try and do everything as you know, safely for the environment as we possibly can. And seaweed used over years, I'm convinced that, um, well, it helps with one of our great enemies, which is hard frosts Mm. and repeated numbers of frosts because it does seem to strengthen up the cell walls in the leaf structures and helps them to withstand really hard And that's what they claim. That's what the scientists claim. Mm. Well, I think it Mm. works. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, and apart it's a from feeding the mic- that's it, mm. and it feeds uh, the microbes in the soil and well, keeps I, everybody happy. <laughs> see, the, I, I do think this is the other thing with your garden. You're always looking to feed the soil rather exactly. than the plants. Oh, uh, yeah, it's always been my attitude. Yes, and I always say that my soil is like I am. I might have a favourite food, but I don't want to eat it every meal. <laughs> that's so right. Diversity in what a, you a do. A mixed diet yeah. is yeah. great. So, yeah. So if somebody gives you, so I don't know, some cow manure, grab it. Uh, but if somebody offers you some aardvark manure, grab that as well. <laughs> I mean, really, at the end of the day, the different products you put down will add different things to the ground and will help it with the... feed different things. Yeah, exactly. So the wider diversity, the better. Um, so I never knock anything back. Um, I mean, there was the year of the duck poo uh, where we had three 10-metre truckloads of it dumped wow. in our place. a bit smelly. <laughs> it, well, actually, I had a next-door neighbour at the time who's no longer in the area, so maybe she'll forgive me for mentioning this without mentioning names, but she actually threatened us. Um, if we ever did it again, she would she, she would. Have have us for something. I'm not there quite sure is what. A, a particular scent yeah. to duck poo. I tell poo, you isn't what, there? though, six months after the duck poo went down, the soil oh, was it just was just fabulous. jumping. It was just full of worms and microbes, and everything was moving. You could tell that the whole soil was just in such good fettle. Well, I throw horse poo on my compost all the mm. time. Yeah, bags of it. Yeah, because there's just so much of it around me, and so it's I can good do to it. compost it first, so you get oh, yes. rid of the weeds. Yeah. Seeds yeah. Out well, of if it. I was putting it down, I often put it on the garden, but then I put a mulch over over the top. Yeah, yeah to and stop that, that the helps. seeds. But yes, you do get seed in in horse poo, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't. Not use at it. all. And I love it when people ring up or, or talk to me at the nursery and complain about the fact that they had peas germinate in their pea straw. What else would you want? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's great because you pull them all out and, and throw them throw down them and you've got some extra, more extra more pea straw. So, um, and it's fixing nitrogen. It, it is. is. Yeah, no, yeah. it's all good yeah. stuff. So all that sort of stuff, yes. Yeah. So if you can if you can do that for your poor veggies, I'm, uh, I have to say I'm not smug, but I'm pleased that we didn't get the hail because yeah, when you've got an opening well. coming up, you don't things want are going to go wrong. Leaves. So you just don't need the whole garden to be shredded by a hailstorm at the same time. And this is a perfect time of year with some rain about, especially over the next week, to be throwing some dolomite lime around. Unless, of course, you're already on very limey soil, mm. but we happen to be on very acid soil. Who is on limey soil? Geelong. Mm. All down through the Geelong area yes. tends to be quite alkaline. Mount, Mount Gambier Way, et cetera, very mm. heavy Yeah, limestone. so there are areas, but uh, Australia's not renowned for its mm. alkaline soils like England and other parts because we don't have those sort of chalky... No, Britain no. is so alkaline. And yes. It, it mucks the water around terribly. Yeah, so, yeah try uh, washing your hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, so there are areas that are alkaline, and yes, definitely you probably wouldn't throw the dolomite around there. Uh, but in highly acid soils, it's not a bad idea. Absolutely. It does um, help feed. Speaking of acid, my garden is just completely full of camellia flowers at the moment. Mm. Yes, likewise. Dropping like mad, mm. yes. But, oh, hasn't it been a good year for the camellias? They are covered in they flowers. That could be a segue. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> Stephen brought a camellia. Yeah, now this is something that doesn't happen with me very often, although there are some really interesting and rare camellias out there. Um, but those who listen to me on 774 will note that I, yesterday I talked about quirky, weird plants in the garden, and I thought I'd carry the theme through till this morning as well. Um, there is a range of completely unrelated plants that have done basically the same thing, and that is produce stems that curl and twist all over the place. It's a genetic disbalance that becomes stable in the piece that's got it. And so then you can propagate from that piece and you've got a new cultivar. And the Japanese particularly love quirky... Squiggly wiggly. Yeah, and variegated things. Yes, they do. Things that are sort of weird and different. I mean, so they often look out for things that have these sort of strange curly stems. And I bought in a camellia this morning, uh, which is a form of camellia japonica. So it's the common uh, camellia. Um, but it's a form called unruyu, which obviously was discovered in Japan. And its stems all curl and twist, which makes it really quite an interesting plant in the garden, particularly if you thin it. If you go so through and open it up, yeah. Squiggles. Yeah. yeah, so I go through mine and gently sort of prune out little bits and pieces to open it up every so often. It has quite an attractive single cerisi pink flower on it, probably much the same as the wild camellia japonica, I would have thought. Yes. And for those who uh, know their Japanese, they'll already know that uh, anruyu means cloud dragon. And there's several unrelated plants that have curly stems that have been called unruyu. So it's one of those names that's been reused several times in Japan. There's a mulberry called unruyu that gets curly, twisty stems as well. So that is a camellia that is in flower in my garden now. It's not a rapid-growing one. Mine's been in the ground for several years and it's only probably up about a metre tall. It would make a fantastic tub specimen. And when it's not in flower, it's quirky and interesting. I do think camellias are gorgeous. They oh, are. I know some people don't like them because they're too dense, but then, of course, Stephen, there's no reason not to thin them out. Yeah, and that's um, the thing. People just assume that the natural habit of a plant is what's got to be, and it's not necessary. I mean, gardening is a an affectation anyway. We manipulate, change, do all sorts of things in our gardens, and if you think that your camellias are getting too stodgy and thick and full... There's absolutely no reason why you can't thin them out or uh, and open as, them up. As we do, we use camellias as hedges because wind and protection from frost is, you know, something that we're always very mm. interested in. And so we use a lot of camellia hedges because they're so dense yep. and because they're evergreen. And, and really, they flower. Th- they flower for a very long time, much longer period than many other things. And, and at a time of the year when not many other things are flowering, so... Mm. The uh, the Sasanqua camellias are just an absolute picture at the moment in our garden. And we've actually done a hedge on stilts. We planted a whole row of Ooh, Sasanqua camellias. That sounds camellias. very royal-esque. I mean, you know, <laughs> a pleached alley. <laughs> no, no, there's only one side to it. No no alley. We haven't got two sides. Oh, but just no. a, nice, a nice row of uh, clean trunks, clean stems, and then the hedge up on the stilts and it allows the air to come underneath in an area where we need to keep the ground dry. It's a car parking area, but it screens that area from the wind very effectively. So it's a great idea. So well, use just, their density. Absolutely. I've decided to take two of mine out 
They're both pink and they both, you know how some camellias die, when the flower dies, they, they go don't and, shed. Yeah, they oh, that's really brown annoying. and mushy. So yeah. I'm taking yeah. both of them out because I've got about another 20. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and I think you can select. be, you need to be selective. Yeah. You do. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, I've got a handful of camellias in my garden, but you wouldn't even notice they're there most of the time because they're just scattered around. And they're ones that I've, Liked for whatever reason. I mean, I've got the colours of marvellous. Sai in the garden because I like that I sort of sai. archy yeah. sort of habit and the little yes. white bell flowers that look a bit like snowdrops or something. Uh, I've got Amplexa corlis that has leaves about a, a foot long and mm. bright red new growth and these cupped pink flowers. Um, I've got one that I bought years ago as Rosia flora, but I think it's had a name change. It's a little pink species one, which is quite pretty. And again, it has that sort of almost. Weeping ficus look to the plant. I love so, the weeping ones, like yeah. just a little old common tea camellia. It's mm. a very pretty thing, even if you don't pick the tips for the tea. The little I, white, dainty, cupped flowers drooping down. My favourite down. are the Williams, the Williams Sea Eyes. Yes. yes. Which are just, they were a hybrid bred in Britain sometime around the First World War. Yeah, something yep. around about then. Between Saluensis and Japonica, and it was the first time they had camellias that would flower outdoors. Yes. They had had to put them in their great big orangeries, you know. Um, and I just find I have got two absolutely stunning ones across the west of my house, so they're facing north and west. Yeah. And they survive fantastically. They've got Tough. beautiful flowers. Yeah. And they shed them when they're cleanly. Yes. yes, yes, I do like a plant that sheds its flowers. And they do make lovely mulch when yes. when they drop their flowers. Yes. And in fact, they look pretty over the ground until they start going brown. I quite yeah, like a carpet do. of camellia petals. Yep. There's something sumptuous about it, but like yes. magnolia petals. They're yes. the same. If I was buying a camellia now, I'd go out of my way to look for a William C.I. because I just mm. think they're so tough yep, and they're got very a beautiful. a very big old pink one, which, as Stephen says, it's in pretty much full flower now, but mm. in a few weeks' time it'll be a carpet of pink, which is a great highlight of the garden at mm. that And, of course, the other the thing year. about camellias is that the Botanic Gardens in South Yarra, the Botanic, Melbourne Botanic Gardens, has got a really excellent... Camellia collection. They have. One of mm. the six best in the world, they say. Gosh, there you go. Mm. It was started started by Guilfoyle because his father was the first person to bring camellias in. And then Jessup and then Bob Withers. Yeah, donated he, all his, his, his camellias. camellias. Mm. So there's, and of course, there, I'm doing a walk this afternoon and I will just head to the camellias. Because it's such a highlight at the moment. Yeah. Yep. And the yellow one's there too, but it won't be out yet. No, it wouldn't but be, wouldn't finding be. a yellow camellia was very exciting. That didn't happen until the ni- 1990s. Yes, yes, it was quite com- comparatively recent. And it's funny because there's always that colour in a group of plants that the devotees of that group of plants want. It's a holy grail, yeah. or whatever. <laughs> and funnily enough, if they find it in the wild, they get excited for ten minutes and they go, "Oh, we've got a yellow now." <laughs> you know, so and on to something else. Yeah, yes, there'll but be it, something else. They're but trying it to get. is a, a really different camellia. Oh, it's yeah. got. Such a different leaf. Mm-hmm. It's rather beautiful, I think. Yeah. Look, I used to be somewhat dismissive about camellias, not because they weren't useful in good garden plants, but I'd say things like, oh, of course, you can have all the camellias. You can have the pink one, the white one and the red one. Uh, and, and now you have to eat your words. Well, to a certain extent. <laughs> I remember seeing one when I was up in New South Wales a few years ago, one of the tropical Vietnamese camellias. Um, and I think it was 
called atropurpurea or something. It had a leaf about nearly two feet long. Uh, it was like a huge big gum leaf, and this thing didn't look anything like a camellia. It wouldn't grow down here. I don't. Oh, I might grow in Melbourne, but certainly wouldn't grow for me. It's far too cold sensitive. Um, but it was a um, remarkable thing. And then you've got camellias that have got leaves that tiny are tiny you know, little tiny, leaves. tiny, tiny wee little leaves yeah. on them. Uh, There's a minutiflora. Yeah, min- minutiflora is one of those. Gardens. And I've got another one. Um, Oh, name escapes me, that I got from Peter Teese, which has little white bells with a little bit of pink. Um, and it's a very upright, narrow one. It's parva something or another. And tiny leaves and tiny flowers. And it grows in this very tight little upright bush, which would be fabulous as a okay. tub specimen. Or, or, or a corner accent or something Yeah, that's like right. That. Or, you know, where you want something vertical between windows, perhaps, where you've got a narrow piece of uh, brickwork or something between right, windows I've and you got, just want something upright. That's an idea. I've got... The spots. In fact, I need two of them, one on either side. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, pairing, although having said that, pairing is often a risk because, of course, one One will always go bigger than the other. Or or one gets bigger than the other one. But that's always the problem with a hedge too. Mm. Yes. Can I say this is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia Hayward and with me is Stephen Ryan and Meryl Johnson. If you wish to give us a ring, 94190155, or if you'd like to text us, 0488. 809-855. Or if you want to send an email for next week, gardening at 3cr.org.au. So that's 94190155. Yeah, give us a ring. We'd like to hear from you. All right, so we've, we've actually done quite a lot of our comedians this morning, which was something I hadn't <laughs> expected us to do. But well, we there be, you go. we better just, you know, follow up with uh, how to look after them. They're pretty dead easy, actually, but mm. um, they do like a mulch because they've got a a pretty fibrous and dense root system, in no way invasive, but mm. dense around the the bush. And uh, so a good mulch is a help to keep that, that fibrous root system at a constant moisture level and constant temperature. Mm. But they're pretty much self-mulching too, so excellent plants. Well, as I said, I've started my pruning and I, I, th- I was looking at a Tacoma, the... Um Cape honeysuckle. Mm-hmm. I've got the yellow one rather than the orange one. It's and it's really very beautiful. And I cut a big piece off it the other day, and I looked at. It, I thought, oh, oh gosh, they're buds. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, there's so, probably a few more there, but um, well, it's very big. So yes, there is a few more there. Yes. But it is one of the classic stupidity things that one can do. <laughs> uh, is it what? Yes, I sent somebody who I call the undergardener out to clean up something in my perennial border the other day. I've got uh, one of the russes that suckers through the border oh, and I cut oh, yeah. it down. I've, I've got your russ and it's, yeah. it is travelling. Yeah, it does. The it length travels, of my garden. But I love it because it goes the most beautiful colour in the autumn, but we treat it like a perennial, so we cut it down. Craig came over to me halfway through the process of cutting it down. He said, this wasn't a rust, was it? <laughs> it was one of my tree peonies. Oh, oh no, no. No, that's oh. not to be pruned. Uh, oh, the undergardener's in trouble. Yeah, well, yeah. I always figure once it's done, there's no point in getting upset or anything. So I just said, yes, it was my peony. <laughs> it'll, it'll reshoot again, but yes, uh, he's probably taken four or five huge big purple black flowers off it um but anyhow um i can sort of understand seeing the so do you, bare stems there you take your rust down to the ground every year yeah take it right down to ground level i don't even leave stubs because you trip on them yes. <laughs> so i clean it down to ground level and depending on where it is in the border and how much light it gets and how much moisture it'll shoot back again by the end of summer to either something around about a meter and in some parts of the border to nearly two meters and the leaves are extra big because I've 
pruned it down. It's got that vigorous root system underneath yeah. it, so I get these enormously long leaves on it. Uh, and of course, when it turns in the autumn, it goes the most fabulous scarlety red. It's just beautiful. I might cut. I won't cut all of it down because one of them I've I like the height, and yeah. I'm going to put a clematis through it. Yeah, well, oh, that's, fair that's a great idea. Yeah, I love so, doing that. Yeah, yeah, so why not? You probably need clematis varona or something like that. One of the smaller, lighter. Yes, with clematis. smaller leaves. Yeah, very pretty and dainty. We've got Alex from Corumbara, who is just ringing us. Hello, Alex. Good morning. Hello. Hello. Oh, yes, got Got you. you. Yes, we can. Good morning to you. Good morning, Alex. Uh, I have a question regarding uh, older rose bushes. I have a, a property which has a row of rose bushes along a pathway, and they're creating a bit of an obstacle with uh, movement down the track. And I was wondering, is it possible to relocate them at this time of the year? Yes, go for it. Mm. Yep. Yep. It'll be a nice prickly job. Um, But, yeah, roses shift surprisingly well. They do shift very, very easily. And do you know what sort they are, Alex? Oh, no, they're they're quite old. There's no uh, labelling or anything like that which identifies the... So, so it's a new property. You haven't seen them flower before. I have. Any yes. any thoughts on what what sort of flowers they have? Uh, single. Um, they're all different colours, yeah. so oh, that's okay. the only thing I can suggest. Okay, so they're possibly hybrid teas then. Ve- very strong, vigorous, thick wood on them. Yeah, okay. So give them a great big hard top prune first, and uh, which you can still do at this time of the year. Ours are just beginning to shoot, but it, you could still do it right now. Um, cut back hard. And if there's any really old, gnarly wood branches, you know, coming from the base, you can take them right out, just leaving the fresher, more vigorous growths. Cut them back by at least two-thirds, and uh, then you can dig and cut your roots. So dig around the outside of the bush with a, a sharp spade, digging down so that you cut the roots and then just lift them, wash them all off nicely and move them to their new home. And give them seaweed. Yes, give them some okay. a drink of seaweed, both over the, over the plant and all over the ground. And prepare the ground, the hole that you're going to place them into beforehand so that you make a fairly quick move for them. They won't even know they've been anywhere. Mm. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, and I have in the same property a an older uh, mandarin tree, which is prolific fruiter, but it's been yellowing dramatically over the last uh, 12 months, and I'm not sure what to do with it. Okay. Is it 12 months or is it just over the winter? No, no, no. It, it's at least 12 months. Yeah. Okay. I, I think it could have something to do with the cold, damp seasons we've been getting. Yes. Um, and, in fact, there might be a little bit of extra moisture being held in the ground that they don't like. So if the ground's not terribly well-drained, that could be part of the issue. Um there's the, the thing I would do with it, and I'm going to go and do it with my lime tree shortly because it's a bit yellow, um, is give it the washing soda trick. Yes. Yep. Uh, two ounces per foot in height of tree. 
holes around the outside of the drip line with a crowbar and then just divide the crystals up into the holes uh, and bury them. Um, and I do that twice a year with my citrus trees. Uh, I do it in the early autumn and then I do it again in the early spring. Um, and uh, it's surprising what an impact that has on them. And when you buy right. it, is it called washing soda? No, it's generally sold as electric soda. Yep, know it. Yeah, so yeah. if you know the product, uh, I think you can buy it for a couple of dollars a kilo in bags at Coles, um, and I think they sell it as a foot bath. Um, <laughs> it's good for everything. Yeah, so <laughs> well, it's uh, the foot of the tree after all. Yeah, well, it is yes. exactly. So, um, and, and just give us that measure again, Steve. Well, it's all in the old imperial measurements because I've never never got it in my head how to do it otherwise. So it's two ounces per foot in height of tree. And okay. then you just divide the crystals up into the into the holes you've made in the ground with a crowbar. Around the uh, drip line. Yeah, around the yes. drip line of the out, tree. Out from the trunk. Yeah. Yep. So uh, I'd give you. that a crack, but I'd also check your drainage. If you can dig a hole a little away from the tree and see whether it fills up with water or not, you might find that there's too much extra moisture under it after two years of comparatively damp seasons. Which well, if you look after, if you look after the tree it, we won't st- we won't keep being this wet, mm. so I don't think it's necessarily a case of removing it because no, of it. no. And can I say to the listeners who don't know what washing soda is, it's electric soda. It's not electric oh, soda. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Excellent questions. Thanks for ringing in. Thanks, Alex. Ta, bye. Bye. And then we've got Jill from Mulvan East. Hi, Jill. Yep. Jill. You there, Jill? What's going on? Jill? Stephen, I wanted to say my mum always loved her Daria elliptica. Oh, yes. an old plant in the garden for Joe's spot. And, uh, you know, you didn't mention that as sort of an odd one in your list on 774. Mm. So... Yes, because it can be quite curly, can't it? Yes, and yes, those it can. Having said captains. that, the, the the thing I did on seven seven four was more about plants that have contorted, twisted stems, which I wouldn't say Garia necessarily has, uh, but it does have the lovely droopy catkins on it, and mine's been stunning this year in the garden at home. I don't think I've seen it ever as good as what it has been this year. So I do love Garia. Uh, it can be a sombre bush during the rest of the year, uh, so I don't like to have it in a prime position necessarily but for winter effect it's a fabulous plant my sister my sister lives at Mount Eliza and she's grown two in honour of our mum uh-huh. which is a nice little memorial in the garden at her place and can I talk about something in my garden please do um, Jill in Woolworth um, I saw a wrecked begonia because my garden scene is magenta and pink in the front garden, you know, with the flowers or, or with um, leaves. And uh, anyway, I bought for $15, I bought the big Rexagonia in the pot. And it, unfortunately, I thought it needed a lot of water and I killed it. Oh, but they, dear. Gave, they couldn't find the price for the little one, so they gave it to me. And without watering it, it's absolutely a little gem in a pot on the front doorstep, along with other things like the... Um, uh, uh, I've got quite a few plants with pink flowers, you know, the hy- um, hyacinths and things like that all together in pots, and it looks 
lovely. It sounds like yeah. a beautiful colour scheme with the all the bronze and burgundy foliages. There's so many wonderful plants that have that colouring and, and set I off the flowers. I think it's called iridaceae. It has beetroot coloured leaves. So I'm going to plant a whole lot of those as soon as it's a bit warmer. And um, that's, that's definitely the colour. The beetroot colour is my favourite colour. Yes. As a, as a child, I was given a doll with a magenta beret. <laughs> and it's imprinted. I'm 80 now, and that was when I was six. <laughs> now, we'll have to try and get you a lovely plant. It's a campanula or a bellflower, to give it its common name, but its name is beetroot, and it has beetroot pink, long, slender bells and dark beetrooty foliage. I think it's the perfect plant for you. Oh, that'd be... Could you just say the paddock name? It's a, a campanula, and it's called the cultivar is called beetroot. Oh, in inverted commas. Yes, yes I that's get it. The idea. Oh, that's so easy to remember. <laughs> yes, I've well, got lots, lots of them. You know, snapdragons are brilliant because you can have them in pink, pale pink, and magenta. And, and they're. they're you really can't beat them for length of flowering, can you? I had snapdragons this last summer that bloomed from late spring all the way through into winter. And the dear little things, I cut them back, the dear little things are shooting up again and I can see they're budding once again. So snapdragons, well, you, great value. And if you water them at the roots, not on the foliage, yes. they don't get the rust. In the summer. That's exactly right. And and as Virginia was saying earlier, keeping things well aired, making sure there's there's room for air movement around them, and that's certainly the case for snapdragons. It keeps them nice and healthy and, and they really quite like being pruned back after a flush well, of flowering and then they bounce away again. Terrific well, value. I, I let I let them go to feed a little bit. Some you know, one branch. And then I picked the seed off and planted somewhere else. Yep, good idea. And they grow readily from seed. Actually, I've got a lovely new one that I'm about to um, pop up on the website in the next couple of weeks. And it's called Night and Day. And it's a bicoloured snapdragon with a dark chocolatey burgundy red bottom lip and an ivory cream top lip and a terrific colour combination and nice and hardy so yeah they're they're a great plant to adventure with you can get all sorts of stripy ones too which look like circus tents they're very bizarre but rather interesting oh it sounds a bit like joy hester doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> exactly she would have loved them <laughs> yeah. oh well thank you for listening and thanks and, for uh, ringing in every week and uh, yes yeah, thanks for the program as ever Thank you. Thank you, Jill. uh, I used to be on the committee of the Herb Society, so I'd ring in about what they're doing. But I resigned after 40 years. I thought I'd give someone else a go and (laughs) I'd do something else. So I joined the Rose Society. (laughs) Good on you, Jill. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. Oh, that was interesting. Um, Now, we have another one on on our um, texts about to plant an apricot tree want to plant it and have some flowers underneath what would be good companion plants 
and ah. not compete too much with the root system. Yeah. You could put some compa- – uh, sorry, what am I saying? You could put some calendulas, some uh, really beautifully coloured calendulas. Um, the common one is just a bright orange, and, and that's lovely. But there's all sorts of wonderful new colour ways that you can have the, the good old-fashioned English pot marigold or calendula in. There's creamy ones, there's greeny ones, there's pinky ones, there's vivid ones that are bright orange with red tips and all sorts of wonderful cultivars. But they're an excellent companion plant. Yes, because they very much bring the insects, don't they? They do very much help with the pollinators. They have an incredibly long blooming period. Ours have bloomed all through the winter and they've made a really bright and cheery note through some pretty gloomy weather and they'll just keep going on and again you can chop them back if they're starting to look a bit leggy or you want to encourage a new crop of compact flowering you can get tall ones you can get short ones so they're a wonderful companion plant to be you know adventuring in i've got a um almost white nasturtium yes um growing with some of my vegetable trees yes and i just think it's it's lovely I, i'm not mad on the orange nasturtium it's a bit no no there's some lovely ones there's uh there's a there's dwarf ones too these days we've got a lovely one up on the website at the moment uh which is a dwarf nasturtium not a trailing not a climbing not even a tall growing one a really dwarf one uh called salmon baby and it's a a really luscious rich salmon pink but there's also Yeti cream, which is, as you say, almost that, white. Yes, I love that cream. It's yes, a, it's beautiful. And it's interesting, isn't it? At the moment, I think white is so good in the garden. It's very but popular at, at the moment. At this time of year. Yes, it is. That does it's, lead to the issue, too, that uh, a group of plants that you can always plant under trees that are never competitive are virtually any bulb. Yes, so bulbs, crocuses at the moment yeah, are just thriving. And, you know, some of the smaller narcissus would be good. Yes. Um, uh, even though they're a thug in parts of the garden, but the classical bluebells can look fantastic under fruit trees. Yes. Um, and if you have something that follows on, like some of the um, bedding plants or annuals or uh, perennials and things that are cut down, then you extend your flowering season. So you have your bulbs early, then you have your other things coming on board. So there's plenty of things you can plant. And, of course, the bulbs love being under deciduous mm. trees. Mm. I would yes, say, I though, I wouldn't plant too much the first year. Yes. around your apricot tree because it's got a small root system at this point. It's just been planted. I would just mulch it the first year at least, get the tree settled, get it moving. Uh, once it becomes established, it will compete with most things that you plant under it, but I wouldn't do it in the first season. And apricot is absolutely one for summer pruning, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yes. Most definitely. So there you go. So there's a few ideas. Yep. And there's probably a limitless number of plants you could use, actually, if you but really I think about think, it. But I actually think that... The bulbs are a fabulous idea because, because of that because of the seasonal dis- difference. Yes. Yes. And it's being deciduous. So you, I've just removed a huge amount of plectranthus from a very big weeping cherry. Mm. And the reason I've removed it all is because the weeping cherry is absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, And particularly in winter where you can see it's the warm structure. and it's, it's twisted and, you know, because mm. it's an old tree. Yes. And or, it's or ridiculous. Or plant the little tiny bulbs like under an old weeping cherry. We've got at the moment an absolute carpet of galanthus, the, yes. the little English, true English snowdrops. Um, they only grow six inches, 15 centimetres high. And these charming little white um, bells, like little ballerina skirts, um, with the, well, 
There's lots of people who are galanthophiles. They're absolutely nuts about these yeah, things. The world that... record was broken recently in England and they sold one galanthus bulb for somewhere over 1800 Pounds for one bowl, and then you have to lie on your stomach and check whether the you yeah know, whether the, it's any different it's from got, the other green it's white got ones a you've got slightly <laughs> larger or a slightly smaller green or indeed even yellow yeah. spot. But even the yellow ones tend not to be overtly yellow. No, you've got no. to really look. You have yes. to look. Yeah. yeah, you have to look. So, but that's what's so beautiful about them and beautiful about this time of the year. You have to really look. Mm. Nothing's ostentatious. Well, I was thinking and... of putting a whole lot of cyclamens under it. Yeah, yep. perfect. 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 I've got those but under an old Select one species and make a drift. Yes. Because if you muddle them up, what yes. happens is you say, all right, well, I'll have them flowering at different times, which is true, but you tend to dilute the show. Yes. Because you've got some that aren't in flower and some that are. So I would plant all coom or all repandum or all hedrophyllum if you want yes. to go autumn. Or yes. at least separate them. Yeah, keep them yes. in separate separate yes. drifts because they work much, much better that way. Yes. And, and again, going them. back to Merrill's dainty, I mean, they're, they're tiny and they're, they're very pretty. So you, you need to have them on mass to make a real sort of oomphy impact if you just got and one little it's much it. more than just the flowers i mean what am i saying just the flowers the flowers are gorgeous and and with some of the cyclamen the scent is also gorgeous mm. but it's the leaves that i love best of all and i mm. i've sort of weed them out now to keep the ones that have the most beautiful leaf markings but they're so varied in mm. their leaf markings yeah yes well I'm, i i thought cyclamen or, or cyclamen Depending on what Which, school you went to. Yep. I say cyclamen, but that's all right. It doesn't matter. I'm, I, I often, if somebody uses a different pronunciation to me, depends on who they are. If they're, if, if they're just a nice, lovely customer that comes in, I just change my pronunciation to theirs uh, and just keep going with the conversation. Yes. <laughs> nice compliment. I, I think Craig says cyclamen. Mm. But anyway, doesn't which matter. is where I'll get them from. Yeah. But, yes, I think that'll be really nice, having a whole lot of cyclamen under that yeah. tree. And yeah. it's on the driveway in front of the house. Yeah. Yes, I've been, I've, I've, and I'm chopping out everything that's high around it. You know, just to yeah, you need to give it when that trees have a, a, a distinct presence, they need to be sort of celebrated. Some, yeah, celebrated and, and be isolated slightly so that they can, can show, show themselves their, off. Mm. Yes, um, that's why if I plant something with contorted or twisted stems, I, I want to have a fairly blank canvas around and behind them. Uh, in fact, if I can plant them against a white wall or something, all the better Even because better. it shows them off and it also creates a shadow that goes onto the wall so you get double value out of the stem. So, mm-hmm. you know, I and you and you idea. want something underneath a, a beautiful tree like that. You do want something that's quite low. You don't want to destroy the shapes. So our little miniature bulbs that we were talking mm. about, just perfect and with these uh, uh, galanthus, the true English snowdrops, we follow up with fritillarias. They come afterwards. They bloom after the galanthus. And uh, they're, they're wonderful, the fritillaria maleagris, the snake's head fritillary oh. with their cheeks. They used they... to call them leper lilies. <laughs> <laughs> they have a checkerboard pattern. They have they're really quite showy bells. stunning, but I just can't grow them. A lot they of the either people love you with, or yeah, hate you. A lot of people struggle with them. They're absolute martyrs to slugs and snails, so they'll come through and mow them off on you if you're not watching. Uh, and they're very... Fragile. So if you're a bit of a thumping gardener, if you, you tromp around in yeah, your hobnails, you can, you can <laughs> generally scrunch them to nothing before you know it. But I actually bought a little bulb along this morning, which might be worthwhile mentioning. I in think passing. we should. It's perfect to go with what yeah. we've been talking and about. And it's one of the little narcissus. 
Uh, it's Narcissus cyclaminius oh, or wow. cyclaminius. Um, and it's a little tiny daffodil that comes from Portugal and Spain. It was thought to be extinct for a long time and then was rediscovered. Um, in fact, I think it was Gerard in one of his herbals put up a picture of it and said, um, this is probably a mythical plant and it's never <laughs> never to be seen, but I put the picture in anyway. Um, he probably would have been embarrassed. It might have been Culpepper. I can't remember. One of those famous herbalists had decided that it never had existed and that was, you know, sort of the unicorn of, uh, <laughs> the, plant uh, of the plant world. And it's the, it's the cutest little thing. It has quite a long, narrow trumpet. Its petals flare straight back, so it looks like a Christmas bonbon. Yes. Um, and, in fact, there are images up on, on the um, Facebook and Instagram accounts for um, the garden show. So if people want to go in, they'll see the camellia, they'll see this little narcissus. Now, this is one of the few narcissus that don't like to have their bulbs dried right out, hence you'll never see them generally for sale as a dormant a bulb. A bare bulb. Um, and they're great under trees and things. Uh, so small, though. It's tiny, but when you get a drift of it, it is just exquisite. The other issue with it, from the point of view of the home gardener, is that the bulbs rarely, if ever, multiply. So it, it has to, to self-seed. Seed. Yeah. And it doesn't always set seed pods. So I get in with a little fine twig or something and I hand-pollinate or my Narcissus cyclaminius, uh, to try and get it to self-seed, and it has. And it's now self-seeded into the soil cracks between my um, brick paving in oh, my I'd nursery. Oh, I love it in there. Yeah, nice so it's coming up in amongst the bricks. So every time I see somebody go to walk down there, I say, now be careful, don't stand, <laughs> don't stand on, on those. Uh, I mean, they're in flower at the moment, so hopefully they're obvious enough people wouldn't. But people sometimes aren't looking where they're going. They um, will during your open garden. Maybe. Yeah, well, this isn't at, the, at home. This oh, is this is the, in the nursery. The nursery. Um, and yeah, so in another week or so, I'll get in and hand pollinate them and try and remember to collect the seed this year so I can raise some to sell. Uh, I haven't any at the moment um, because I forgot to collect the seed last year. Uh, oh. They will flower within two years of sowing seed. So it's not an overtly long time. I mean, you'll plant annuals to have flower in one year. So if you can plant a bulb seed that'll flower in two, I don't it's think that's doing bad. pretty well. Yes. But also, we plant other things like the geranium madarense. We plant yeah. that to flower in the second year. Yeah. Foxgloves flower in the second year. Exactly. So yeah. I think it's definitely well worthwhile growing if you can source a bulb or two to start you off. Um, and uh, it's still under threat in the wild. It grows in sort of damp meadows in Portugal and Spain. Um, and I think it's got to be one of the cutest of all it the narcissists. It, it looks like it's in a hurry. It's got its petals yes, it's, swept it's right back. Its ears are blown back like yeah. a spaniel. It's, it really is. It's the cutest little thing. And it's got to be one of my favourites. Um, but uh, once it's installed in the ground, if you've got it in a spot where it's happy, it just comes up every year and, and flowers. I and think the reason come. I haven't been able to grow the fritillaria, because mm. I haven't tried the last three years, I reckon it was again... You know, I started 16 years ago in my garden, which was just straightforward drought. It yeah. was. And I'm on top of the hill, so yes. the drought's even more pronounced. And I think that's my problem with fritillarias. I yes. cannot grow them because probably if I was growing, the, trying the Turkish ones or whatever. Maybe. Now, yeah, some somebody, of those somebody's, in the summer. Somebody's yeah. come back to us and asked, how do you spell fritillaria? Ah, F R I T A L A L L. 
A R I A. Yes. Frutillaria. I yeah. need to write it down. It's easier see to it. write it down, yeah. isn't it, than sort of spell it off the top of your head. What was happening then, everybody, was Meryl was closing her eyes as she yeah. was spelling it. <laughs> yes, visualising it. I was the writing spelling. it down in my head. <laughs> oh, dear. Yes, it's the only way to go. But I think that's why I haven't been able to grow them. Yeah, they do like. Uh, leaf they, compost they, and mulch, that sort of thing, where they can stay relatively undried out. Yes. Dry and, over summer, but not completely parched, yes. yes. And, and then they will self-seed if they've found if a congenial mm. spot, yes. Well, of course, in Britain they just grow them in the lawn. Oh, yeah, they just let them go wild it's in the, the lawns. Mm, mm. But not for me, not to be. I might have another go. Mm. I wonder if Jane Tonkin has your... Yes, she would. Definitely. She, yeah, Jane is, is a great source for any of these more obscure bulbs. Uh, whether she's got Narcissus uh, cyclaminius at the moment, I don't know, uh, but it would certainly be in her collection um, and she may well have plants of it to sell in due course. And, of course, she also grows quite a range of fritillarias. So yes, yes. including don't... some of the Turkish ones, mm. which are very much more suited to uh, Australian summer conditions. Yes. They like the well-drained and the, yeah, the if you, summer if you dry. go to places like Crete and you see them growing in the wild in the sort of gravelly, the buckshotty stuff on the side of the road. Yes. Um, it's quite an eye-opener. <laughs> <laughs> Heartening, really. <laughs> yes. So that's Tonkin bulbs, if yeah. you go online and look at Tonkin bulbs. Yeah. And I think Jane is on next week as well, so if you oh, want to great. talk to her. Uh, well, there you go. So she may well tell us whether she has Narcissus cyclaminius and others for sale. Yes. And Robert from Mitcham is ringing us. Hello, Robert. Oh, good morning, all. But uh, you're having a very good program this morning, as always. But uh, I'm coming in with not the, not the good news, the bad news. I've got roses have got white scale on them. What should I do? I would give them a, a spray with some oil, some gardening oil at the moment. Yes, so you can use winter oil right now. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And now's the best time to do it because you can get that winter oil on which will do a really good smothering job on the scale but won't hurt the plant whatsoever or anything else. So great time to do it. That's another well, job we've got to do this weekend. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I've got other problems as well. Can we go there? Yes, go, go right do. ahead. <laughs> okay. Little Pyrrhus in a pot that's uh, coming on the flower. That all, the, all the new growth has got little orange-brown spots over the leaf. Well, I've seen that, and I just think it's a growing condition thing. Uh, how long has it been in the pot, Robert? Oh, probably too long. There's only a little one. It's only better put high. Yeah. Look, I, I would be very tempted to pot it on. Yes. Uh, I think it may be getting a bit root-bound, maybe a little hungry underneath. Um, so I'd pot it on in a bit of good potting mix, give it a bit of slow-release fertiliser uh, and see how it goes from there. Uh, I just think it's a conditional thing. Yeah, I, I think I think it's a nutritional mm. problem. It's not getting all the the goodies that it wants, and so it's uh, spotting like that. I I don't believe it's an insect or no, disease problem. I don't think I so. I have think seen it's just it a feed problem. Yeah, it's nearly always on a slightly hungry yep, plant on the so, young growth. Yeah, so I'd pot it on into a new pot. I'd tease the roots out a little bit and get rid of some of the old potting mix, only a little bit, um, and then repot it into something just fractionally bigger than what it's in. There you go. Is it one of the is it one of the little growing ones because you can have great big almost tree like pyrus and yeah, you can no, have no, little miniature ones? Yeah, 
This is only a, one, one of the uh, a very small ones. They're gorgeous and, things, really lovely foliage, beautiful are. flowers, often called lily of the valley bush or snowbell bush because of the shape of the flowers, these trusses of uh, white, pink, bell-like flowers, beautiful plants. Mm-hmm. And we had another one that uh, unfortunately we lost on one of those very hot days early this year. Mm. Yes, they don't like the heat too much. Yeah, so this one just got late afternoon sun and it absolutely killed it. No, they're understory plants. They like being underneath trees and shrubs and things, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly where it was, but it just got a... <laughs> just uh, too a, much. A, a, that horrid sunshine. Also, we've got the gardenia, uh, one gardenia that's going yellow. It's also in a pot, yes, and it's, but I did repot it uh, six months ago. I um, think that might be a weather problem. Co- just that's what cold. I was going to say. It's cold. What mm. gardenias hate is changes in temperature. They like to have a constant sort of air temperature, relatively, you know, unchanging air temperature and unchanging air humidity. So I think it might be just a weather problem with that chap. Given they, we've got the, this, this one sits on a patio on the uh, north side of the house. Yes. It's, it is... Well, it is understory. It's, it's, it's certainly with the, the trees we've got, it's uh, it's understory. But, yes, uh, but you are in Mitcham, and gardenias come from much much warmer climates than you are offering it in Mitcham. I and think, we have I, had a cold winter. I think you'll find as we get further into the spring, it'll. Pro- I'd give it a little bit of seaweed just yep. to make give it, it a tonic. tonic. Yep. But then mm-hmm. I think I'd wait. I yep. think its problem is just that it's too been damn too cold. cold. <laughs> Used to be some sort of, uh, did they say, feed them with alum or something like that? Was that was with gardenias, they always talk about Epsom salts. Mm. Epsom salts, probably. Yeah. Uh, I've never used it. I don't grow gardenias because Mount Macedon's even slightly colder than, than Mitchum. <laughs> uh, so I've never bothered with them where I am. Uh, I can't even grow the tree gardenia, unfortunately, as much as I'd love to. Um, but, uh, yes, everybody talks about using Epsom salts on gardenias and many people like swear by it. Pardon? What was that, Robert? Do we, is it likely to work? Oh, look, I, I, people it's swear not, by it. So. It's not going to do it any harm, yeah, it but I think harm. warmer weather will yeah, we'll see help. it improve. And I suspect right. the Epsom salts would be better given to it when the weather's warm. Yeah, when yeah, it's got give some it another growing. Month or so. Yes. Mm. When it's warmer. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I think at the moment the only thing I'd give it is a bit of seaweed. Mm. Yeah, and just move it into, well, if it's in a pot, move it into your most sheltered spot keep it away from the, the cold. They've been exceptionally cold nights. Hmm. Well, they, they certainly have been that. But, uh, other than that, just uh, one final thing. You were talking earlier about the lime sulfur spray. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yes. I just whizzed down and had a look at our, well, I think it's a nectarine tree. It is starting to uh, swell the buds up. Yes, now's, now's the time. The time. Now's the time, yeah. and, yes. And definitely. do it a week later as well, just to be on the safe side. Then you've got good coverage. Right, just, just, just the, the two sprays. That yep. should do it. Yes, should safe. do it as long as you don't get rain fairly soon after the spraying, which oh, might be yeah. difficult this week. <laughs> yeah, could be. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not saying much rain, but, uh, well... We will see. Yeah. There you go. And also, very glad to hear that Graham Morrison's coming back on. But, uh, we love him. Mm-hmm. Good. As we love you a lot as well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, and, Robert, somebody's just texted in that your, your gardenia might have been overwatered 
mm. as well, that they don't like being over water. Yes, yeah, so they do like everything to remain sort of constant and stable, and that includes the water. So, yes, keep, keep it a little bit on the lean side in the winter when it's not growing. There you go. Well, thank you for the caller. Mm. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Our <laughs> listeners are wonderful. <laughs> thank you okay, very much, Robert. Thanks once again. Bye. 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 Yes, well, that's uh, that's true, isn't it? Our listeners will come in. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yes. They're yes. just an encyclopedia of and decades you, of knowledge. And if there. you want to ring us, it's 94190155. So feel free. All right. Well, I've got one more plant we didn't discuss, so we might as well do that if you don't mind, because it is up on the all. on the on the website uh, or on the Facebook page, I should say, and that's the contorted filbert. Um, I think this is one of those plants that makes a great conversation piece in a garden. Some people hate it. I've had people go, really? "Oh, it's ugly. It's oh, deformed." No. I've had all sorts of weird comments about it, but I don't actually mind that because if they're doing nothing else, they're having a conversation. So, and we don't want everybody to like the same things. I mean, if we all liked exactly the same things, our gardens could be quite boring. Bland. You know, so I, I'm quite happy for people not to like it. Um, I, it and it does have one or two downsides. Uh, not only is its stem all twisty and curly, but so are its leaves. And most and that people can look as if it's got a bit of disease yeah, or exactly. a bit of curly and leaf. Most through. people buy it now when it's bare because it's got its lovely golden catkins hanging on it and it's got the wonderful squiggly stems and they get terribly excited and they buy one. But they haven't seen the foliage. So I always warn people when they buy one from me in the winter that in the spring its leaves will come out and they're quite large because it's a hazelnut basically and they're yeah. quite large. But they also curl and twist around the edges. So it's not a fungal disease like curly leaf on a, a peach tree or whatever. It's natural to the tree. So it always has those sort of curly, strange-looking leaves on it. Um, I think it's a great plant. I'm really very, very fond of it. Um, and it is a great conversation piece. So it will you know, bring people into the conversation. If you plant a whole row of iceberg roses, the best thing they can say about it is... That, they bloom a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, there's not a lot of conversation about some of those more common plants that we see around because everybody's aware of what they are, what they do, and they know about them, so they don't need to talk about it. But if you plant something like a contorted filbert, I can almost guarantee that it will create con- uh, sort of conversation. So it's a really, really good plant. So... Uh, uh, it grows to eventually a plant about three to four metres tall, yep. so it's quite a large shrub. Uh, I've got one in the garden at the nursery that was given to me by my mother for my 18th birthday. Um, it's a venerable plant. It is quite <laughs> venerable now. Uh, it got burnt almost to ground level in the Ash Wednesday bushfires, but it had a huge root system under it, so when it shot away again, it went vomp and you know sent up, I think in the first year, it sent up shoots that were about a metre and a half long. Um, and is it at the house or at, no, at, the, at, at the nursery? The, nursery. Um, the other thing I will say of contorted filberts too, it's becoming less and less common to buy them as grafted plants, which is good. Um, they were always grafting them onto ordinary hazelnuts and they always send up suckers. And yes. I'm forever going under mine. Bless mum and all that sort of stuff, but she bought me one that was, was the only grafted. way you could buy them at that time, which was a grafted plant. And so I every year I've got to get underneath it and chip out Take all of out the suckers, and, and yep. it drives me nuts. Because uh, those suckers won't have the lovely contortion. No, they send up these great big long straight stems and that go grow right very up vigorously. Yeah, so buy it on its own roots, make sure it isn't a. a, a, a a layered plant is how they normally produce them. What the growers do is they dig up a whole filbert, 
dig a trench, lay it down the ground with a few little bits sticking up out of the ground. Um, they normally wound some of the stems and then in 18 months, two years later, you dig the whole thing up and chop it up into a mass of plants or with individual root systems. Uh, and that works really well. Um, so if it's on its own roots, anything that comes up from below ground levels, the same plant. So it See, doesn't matter. I feel exactly the same about passion fruit. Yeah. Why would you grow passion fruit on one of those horrible banana passion fruit rootstocks? Yeah, which because they invariably shoot. Shoot and take over the whole show. Yeah. So, yeah, so there are some plants quite obviously that have to be grafted uh, and it's logical. Um, I've got are- a green gauge. Mm. It is, it's grafted. And it's always sending up suckers everywhere. Yeah. It drives me yeah. demented. And sometimes yeah. things are grafted because it's just a convenience for the growers um, because when the big bare-rooted tree growers grow their trees, if they grow things from cuttings, they've often got to do that at a time when they're doing a different job, whereas if they can bud them all, they do them in the middle of summer when they're not doing other jobs. Mm. Uh, and so some things tend to be budded even though it's not actually all that necessary. It's just a, an easier production line thing for the growers. So there's many plants I'd much prefer to have on their own roots if I can. Uh, but, you know, there are alternatives. And certainly the contorted filbert is one of those things that should be on its own roots. And well, it's a pleasure to prune it too because it makes the most Beautiful specimen in a vase with the at this time yeah, of the I year. I look out for ladies away. with large handbags and a yeah. pair of scissors, actually, <laughs> uh, because it's surprising how often I get asked about whether you know I would be prepared to uh, donate forego a few some of my branches. <laughs> um, uh, and I don't often succumb vase. because it is a, a plant that I love just left in the garden. But yes, as a cut stem thing it's beautiful and in fact when it's finished it's catkins you can use it in the winter as a cut foliage or cut flower thing in in a vase but when it finishes flowering just dry the stem out uh, and you can use it for dried flower work forever i've got a friend who actually had a branch of it just uh, attached to a white wall in her house it was like a piece of sculpture and it was lovely just this wonderful silhouette of this curly twisty stems it looked really good there's lots of things that you can dry for using later in floral arrangements eryngium sea holly are a great mm. case in point. When I, I love those plants. When I was in England, I went to one of the big flower shows, Hampton Court, and they had these incredibly dense eryngiums. They were so beautiful. The sea holly, everybody. Yes. Absolutely gorgeous. And they were they were smallish and dense, you know, they weren't sort of leggy. Ah, oh, uh, okay, probably blue blue hobbit, probably Eryngium yeah. planum, blue hobbit, which is a dwarf growing one. Do we have it in Australia? Yeah, yeah, well, we have it via seed, yes, and I think it's relatively freely available as a nursery plant as well amongst specialists. Oh, growers. I, I want it. I thought but it was so beautiful. They grow readily from seed, quickly right. and easily from seed. I'll, I'll um, just to describe get onto Arind- your website. <laughs> <laughs> just to describe Eryngiums to people who've never met a sea holly, do not be afeard. They're not going to spike you to death. They look quite spiky. They look like metallic mm. lace. They look like they're mm. cut out of sheet metal, um, but they're not at all dangerous. Very good plant for Australian gardens because they're heat and dry hardy, mm. um, but superb for floral work either. Well, they're commercial cut flowers in, in the floral trade. 
uh, because they last incredibly well in a vase, but they last even longer in the garden. I'm a, I'm a bit mean. I like to see things in the garden. Me I'm too. a bit loath to sort of... I love having them. a cut flower in the house, but yes, you're right. I, 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 I prefer I, it in the garden. Yeah, I like to leave them in the and, garden. And these do last an incredibly long time in the garden. So they're very lacy flowers, looking as if they've been cut out of sheet metal, often iridescent blues, greys, silvers, sea greens, wonderful range of colours. There's a whole host of them available and ideally suited to Australian garden conditions in that they don't mind becoming a bit hot and dry and bothered over summer. It just makes them flower even better. But if you want to keep the flowers as cut flowers, you just harvest, hang them upside down in a bunch in a sort of cool, darkened spot, shady spot, Ah, there we are. Oh, look at that. Yes. That's, uh, For those who aren't watching us, it's a, a photo that um, uh, Virginia is holding up, up to the microphone yeah. so that you can and all it's a see wonderful it clearly. Blue. And that one is a Aringium Zabelli. Yes. Big blue. Yes. Big blue. Big blue. Is that another one we have here? Yes, Zabelli we do have here. Yes. Oh, wow. I just, I thought they were so divine. And this one. She's holding it up to the microphone again. Again. Can you read that? Oh, I haven't got my glasses I'll on. I'll read it. It's Senecchio Candy Cans Angel Wings. Senecchio Candy Cans yeah. we have in Australia, but yeah. not that cultivar that I'm aware of. It is absolutely silver. So that's silver. not so drought tolerant. No. Gosh, it looks so drought tolerant. I know. Yeah, it should it's be. Not. <laughs> uh, With silver fur leaves. It likes leaves. it coolish. Yeah. The Senecchios yeah. generally or oh, just no, this no, one? no, just that one. Candy cans. Um, I would treat that like I would a snow daisy, the Selmizias or something like that. It likes a cooler, damper soil, likes plenty of light but doesn't want to be in a hot, dry, arid spot. It will just collapse. Right. But oh. lovely foliage. Absolutely A lot beautiful. of silver foliages can be quite... Dusty and dull looking, but that sort of is a really it's metallic iridescent, silvery. Yeah. Yes. And uh, some of those silvery foliages are particularly beautiful. Yes. And this one. Oh, look we're, out. <laughs> we're having a photo opportunity here, folks. I'm, well, no, we're talking about the plants, yeah. which is thyme, Thymus longiflorus. It is, again, a stunning. And it's, it's true to name. It's a thyme with. Quite long trumpety bells in quite an yes, attractive shade a of very rich, showy sort of flower, lavender pink. And for a time, I thought that was extraordinary. Have you yeah. ever seen that one? I haven't seen that one, but I do love the juniper thyme, which is a similar sort of one. It's a um, a cascading thyme with very silvery foliage and a pink, lovely, showy pink flower, like similar pink to your showing the microphone at the moment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and again, extremely, extremely drought tolerant. Well, I'll put those basks in the sun and heat. I will put both those eringiums on Up our on, Facebook page. That's because, a great yeah, idea. So yeah, people can meet people an eringium. Yeah, because I, I do. I love eringiums. I, I think do they're too. very beautiful. My favourite one, just for the story is uh, Eryngium giganteum, Miss Wilmot's Ghost. Oh, yes. Mm. Yes, I know (laughs) Miss Wilmot's Ghost. And to tell the story very briefly, Miss Miss Wilmot was a great gardener. She was one of the wealthiest heiresses of her day, you know, back in the day. Quite dictatorial as well about gardening. (laughs) Very, very opinionated, you know. You would quiver in your boots if she wanted to join your gardening I would love to have got her and Gertrude Jekyll together. Oh, so it would have been a formidable (laughs) fight. It would have been a fighting match. Yeah. Anyway, 
um, she would wander around giving her opinions about people's gardens. She was an inveterate garden visitor, but not a nice, charming, polite garden visitor like us. She would bestow the garden owners with her very strong opinions. And if she felt that they hadn't quite got their planting schemes right, she would always have a pocket full of eryngium seed, which tells you how readily this stuff can germinate. And so she would be known to drop handfuls of eryngium Miss Wilmot's ghost seed in patches that she felt weren't appropriately planted. So that some months after her visit, here they would appear. And so it came to have the name Miss Wilmot's ghost because it always appeared after she'd visited. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> sure that I approve of that behaviour. No, I don't think anyhow. it was nice, but no, she wasn't a very nice and lady. And it's quite a big plant. It mm. is a big plant. She yeah. really made a statement, yes. yes. But it has that lo- lovely shiny yeah. silver. I don't know whether it was her or the other one, but one of them said, no matter how small your garden is, you should have at least three acres of woodland, (laughs) (laughs) which I adore. I think it's the most fabulous uh, comment to make. And of its era, because... True gardeners back then had acreage. Yeah, that's you know, right. Not the, like the rest you know, of the us. The commoners who lived in the little cottages and things didn't have gardens per se. Well, yes, they, they did. They grew lots of lovely things. Yeah, but they had flower patches. Yes, and you know, a garden and... was grand. Yes, you know, it was only grand. Yeah, so uh, I love all that sort of thing. You know, yeah. So, so no matter how small. Well, your and of is, course, if you go back far enough, they were considered a park was considered a bad thing because it meant it had deer. Yeah. And so things got damaged and there was only – it wasn't, you know, full of things. It wasn't floriferous and full yeah. of stuff. And, and for the ordinary people like us. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, that's Absolutely. a different era. Now, Jill's rung back in, Jill from East Brighton. Jill, are you there? Different Jill. I'm oh. East Brighton, not East Malvern. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Jill. The and I can see that. Okay. Yes. It's okay. That's happened before. And uh, I'm a great admirer of Jill of East Brighton, uh, East, East Malvern. Oh, yes, and myself. You're confusing yourself with her now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she, she's done a wonderful job for the Herb Society for so many years. And, and uh, I sometimes hear her on um, 774 to ABC as well. Uh, making some pity comments. Mm. And anyway, that's that's not why I rang in. Just a couple of things. Stephen, you were talking about the contorted filbert or crazy yeah. filbert, as we call it in our family. You recommended I should ha- uh, plant one years ago when I I have this position by the front door, which is deeply shaded yeah. and get, uh, in winter and you know gets the blast of sun in summer. And it's been fabulous, but I bought two of them. One was grafted, and I just thought when you were talking about having to cut out all the uh, suckers, I was doing that yesterday with the – it's a standard one. So yep. it looks terrific, except for the fact that, you know, it just is such a pain um, yep. with the suckering. And I had, we had just had a renovation. I was going to throw it out because I was so sick of, of the suckers. And um, – uh, um, and the gardener said, but you got me to dig it up carefully. You can't do that to it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you so, can, but should you? <laughs> yes, no, no, should I? No, I won't because we've um, had the house uh, rendered and it's got a lovely cream background and it just looks so going to, be, going to look brilliant, you know, in the winter against that, yes, against that yes. wall. Yeah. Anyway, that was one reason I rang was just to say, yes, do not buy a grafted filbert, anyone. And the other thing was... Um, Steve and I was a bit disappointed that you missed, uh, you know, with your quick sense of humour, that the gorilla from the Concrete Gang uh, gave you a donation of, you know, the show, um, Mm. $200, and can I grow bananas in Melbourne? I'm pretty sure 
that he wasn't really wanting to grow bananas in Melbourne. It was just the gorilla's joke. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it may well have been, but anyhow, he gave the money to the station, so, you know, in the end yes. you've still got to try and answer the question. <laughs> right. And I actually listened to The Concrete Gang because it follows your show, and he is a very funny guy. Um, yes, but anyway, um, that was just uh, yes, something that occurred to me. And I thought, oh, it's not like Stephen not to build on that joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most of the time I'm pretty sharp with those things, but, you know, occasionally you one slides you past. <laughs> anyway, great show as always. Thanks for, Thanks for listening. Thanks very no much, worries. Jill. Okay, Bye. all the best. Bye. Bye. Oh, dear. Well, there you go. Virginia, I wanted to mention something that I I heard this morning that I wasn't aware of, that this week apparently is a day to commemorate all of the animals who have served in the Australian forces, either overseas or at home, and I thought that that was a wonderful thing to do. And it just tied in with some of the, the... seeds for plants that I'd brought along because I thought one of the families I might like to talk about if we got time today was the Poppy family and ah, and yes. that's what made it click in my head when they announced that this week was going to be a day to commemorate and celebrate the animals that had, had served Australia and that was the horses of course in, mm. in the and the dogs war. And the dogs and the dogs yeah. and especially the dogs that have served as... Uh, and probably earlier on in the piece, the carrier pigeons. Well, yes. No, they, they got a special mention <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah. So, so the, yeah, so there's been a lot of animals involved one way or the other. Indeed. And poppies are the, um, the flower that we use as our commemoration and remembrance. And something I didn't know was that they use a purple poppy to commemorate the dogs and the animals that have, have oh, served. Oh, as opposed our, to a red one. As opposed to a yeah. red one. It's a purple poppy, which just keyed in because I brought some seed along to talk about of, well, Papava laciniatum, which is a derivative of the opium poppy, but you can grow this one with confidence that it's not going to uh, cause any sort of problems it, uh, it you're not going to get raided? No, you're not going to get raided <laughs> for it. No, they're, they're perfectly happy with Papava laciniatum, even though it is a derivative from the opium poppy. But they are wonderful flowers, and it's the perfect time to plant the seed now. Fluff balls of feathery um, petals and in a marvellous range of colours, and it just so happened that I brought a packet along this week of Papava laciniatum black swan, which is... Well, not really quite black. It's really a dark purpley maroon. It's a really maroney, whiny colour, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Dark wine maroon burgundy is the best way to describe it. But it's like a powder puff of black feathers and so black swan. And I thought that would be a nice one to grow as a memorial flower for those animals. I've got a funny story about the opium poppy. My uncle was chief of the general staff in the army. And he and my aunt were, became governors of Tasmania. Ah. And just before she went, the governor-general's wife said, oh, I've got a really pretty thing for you to take. Here's some seed. Take this down and plant, it in, plant it in your new garden. And so she did so, just scattered and blah, and forgot all about it. And then some five months later, her <laughs> secretary came in and said, um, Lady Margaret, the uh, chief of police and the head of the prison service are both here. And she said, have they got an appointment? And she said, uh, no, ma'am, but I think they're keen to see you. <laughs> and in they came. And they used prisoners as gardeners. Mm. 
in in the I don't know if they still do, but in, in that big grounds. garden in the government grounds. And of course, they were terribly concerned because all these opium poppies had come up. <laughs> they do. You you can just scatter the seed around. There's and no special come. attention yes. required. And, and of course, I mean, they're not. It's not illegal in Britain to grow opium poppies. No. It's only illegal here because we grow commercial crops of it, and the Americans insisted that we made it illegal anywhere except in the commercial crops if they were going to buy yeah. the produce, which yeah. is you know the morphine. Yes. That, is, that is developed from it. Well, um, So there's a mad story about <laughs> opium poppies. Yeah, well, I, I heard something that might or might not have been true in a similar vein where the local policeman had passed away and one of the local ladies in the town had made up a lovely wreath for the funeral, <laughs> which apparently also included opium poppies. <laughs> Uh, and it wasn't done uh, on purpose, you know. It wasn't. No, done, not. Yeah. It was done out of <laughs> yeah, out of love for the local police. Exactly, and they are a beautiful flower. They are a beautiful flower. Mm. So it's nice to know that we can grow ones that are that spectacular mm. without having any danger. Well, I've attached always had to a great them. soft spot for the Oriental poppies. Well, I, I did bring a packet of, yeah. of Oriental poppy seed as, as well to describe the fact that there are both annual self-sowing varieties and perennial plant varieties as well. So Papava orientale is the one that's the the permanent plant. Um, Well, the other ones, the annual ones, are permanent plants too in that they are so reliable self-seeders. They just go on year after year after year. Last year, for some reason, my... Um, opium poppies didn't come up. Actually, we've had reports of that from a number of people, and I Probably think again, weather, I think weather-driven. It was just too so too be, wet. It'll be interesting. They did well. It's interesting because they did come up in my vegetable garden. Yeah, which, which is, is probably better drained. Much exactly better drained. Exactly. So, mm. but do not fear because the poppy seeds have a viability of about 25 years minimum. Yeah, so you'll probably have so some So they'll be back there. next year or <laughs> yeah. the year after or even the decade after. Yeah, so, yeah, quite so you probably reliably. haven't got rid of them. <laughs> no, no, no. But I don't find they travel. No. No, they don't. At all. No, they don't. I don't they find just them drop around themselves because yeah. mm-hmm. they're, they're quite well, they're heavy so easy seed. to pull out anyway. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if they come up in something else that you don't want them there, one quick little tug and they're gone. That's right. So they're not yeah. they're not a hard plant to manage. And they make good mulch too, so yeah, yes, they're, go. they're all good. Mm. But uh, the oriental poppies are spectacular. They're huge cups of flowers. And the, the particular variety I brought along today is Beauty of Livermere, which is the most incandescent Fire red with a big black so central if, block. So if I was like some of those old English lady gardeners, that's the sort of thing I'd drop around through some subtle person's garden. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that would really I, draw attention. Has, has white and pale, yeah, well, pale purple. Yeah, I remember yeah. the um, uh, apprentice gardener for Joan Lawsmith when she owned uh, Bollebeck many years ago. Uh, he and I used to wander around the garden um, after hours occasionally. And Joan was a very subtle gardener. I mean, she yes. put in pastel colours everywhere. Yes, she and was. Michael and I had this vision that we were going to spread Flanders poppy seed <laughs> all through the garden beds uh, just to bright see what scarlet. would happen. Yes, bright scarlet Flanders poppies. Um, so, yes, I've always had had this thought that, you know, you could do that. Um, it would be evil and wicked, uh, but it could be a lot of fun. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd go around with the poppy seeds sprinkling those. I think so, yes. Yeah. So what else have you bought in your seed line? Actually, I brought a, a range of agastarchy seed. These are the, uh, well, often called hummingbird mints because they are native of the Americas. 
um, and hummingbirds love them. Mm. But I have to say, our Australian spinebills and uh, other honey-eating birds, our eastern spinebills, just absolutely love the Well, they the like nectar. to go out for Mexican occasionally. They do <laughs> like to go out for Mexican, that's right. Uh. And they are so rich in nectar and uh, pollen. So bees and, and honey-eating birds just absolutely adore these. And I've um, been concentrating on a range of wonderful colours in these plants in the last couple of years because I use them around my vegetable garden to attract uh, pollinators. They're, because they bloom for months and months and months, um, they start blooming in the spring and they're still going at the beginning of winter. In fact, you have to cut them down in the end to keep them nice and bushy. But they are useful plants in the vegetable garden as well as, as attracting pollinators because the flowers and the foliage are all edible and they have delicious flavours. Yeah. yeah. The, sometimes, just to make it really interesting, the flowers have a different flavour to the leaves, but they're fully edible. Um, called mints because they often have a fragrance of mint and the flavour of mint or some of them are licorice or anise flavoured or some are quite fruity flavoured so you can use the, the leaves and or the flowers in, in a salad and wonderful colourful decoration. And it really um, frightens the bejesus out of the uh, iceberg lettuce brigade. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> because the, the three I brought, three different com- completely different colours, I brought pink pop which is a popcorn pink, um, apricot sprite, which is all sorts of lovely sunset colours. It's colours. lovely, that apricot. Yeah, gorgeous, mm. gorgeous. And uh, indigo, a, a new one called Estello indigo, which is really almost a dark navy blue purple, but all with that lovely flavour. So you can use the leaves and the flowers fresh in salads, in drinks, in cocktails, in baking cakes, fruit salad. Yummy. And you won't believe it, but we're actually at the end of our program. Goodness, oh, no. where did that hour and three quarters so go? <laughs> <laughs> so I have to say goodbye to everyone and do come back next week. Cheers. Cheers.